0: You guys in a good mood? Yes. You're ready to be challenged a little bit? All right, we're gonna have to go fast today. I got a lot to share with you. I ran out of time in the first service, imagine that. <laughs> um, so we're talking about having a relationship with Jesus and like how does that work? What is that like? And um, right now we're focused on something I'm calling encounters, where we're looking at encounters between Jesus and a person, whether that was like an extended conversation or whether that was a friendship or relationship that somebody had with Jesus, as we discover them in the gospel accounts, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And um, we're just asking ourselves, what can we learn from this passage, this encounter, what can we learn about a relationship with Jesus? And um, we've chosen uh, six different people that we're going to look at. This is going to take us all the way up to Easter. And um, I'm really really excited. Now, a couple things before we get started. I, I want to remind you that we're just looking at what does the passage teach us about a relationship with Jesus. We may not look at the reason the passage was written in the first place. Like last week, we looked at the encounter of Jesus with the woman at the well. And Jesus offers her living water. And, and we didn't explore the idea of living water. We explored the idea of her testimony when she said, this man told me everything that I've ever done. And that's, we learned something about the relationship from that. Today, there's a, there's a very profound truth in this passage that we're going to look at, but it's not what we're going to focus on. We're going to focus on what do we learn from the encounter. Does that make sense? The second thing is you're going to really have to pay attention today. You're going to have to stick with me. Because um, one is, I'm going to talk with you today about something that I don't think I've ever heard a message on. So it's kind of a topic that doesn't get talked about much. The other reason why you're going to have to stick with me is, um, there's at least two points in the message where I'm going to make a hard left hand turn. All right, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna head off in a different direction, and if you don't make the turn with me, then we're not all gonna end up in the same destination. All right, so I've, I've decided I'm gonna give you a blinker, all right, with enough notice that you'll be able to track with me and make the turn. Does that make sense? Sound good? But um, this, this is a really, really important topic. So we're gonna talk about our second encounter today. We're gonna talk about a man named Nicodemus. And we first are introduced to Nicodemus in uh, the third chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 3. And we read this. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know, evidently he's coming there maybe as a representative of a larger group, we know that you are a teacher. But not just any teacher. We know you're a teacher who's come from God because no one could perform the signs or the miracles that you are doing if, if God were not with him. I mean, you're making blind eyes see, lame legs walk, you're turning water into wine. That, that's obviously God kind of stuff. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, Nicodemus, no one, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again well how can someone be born when they're old Nicodemus asked I I, I don't get what you're saying surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born and Jesus answered very truly I tell you no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit flesh gives birth to flesh but the spirit gives birth to the spirit or the spiritual. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. You of all people, you shouldn't be surprised to hear me say that. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Nicodemus asked, how can this be? I I don't get this. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said. And you do not understand what I'm talking about? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Do you get it? Okay, so John tells us three very important things about who Nicodemus is he tells us that he's a Pharisee he's a member of the Jewish ruling council and Jesus interestingly refers to Nicodemus as Israel's teacher he doesn't call him you are one of the teachers of Israel he calls him Israel's teacher so I think there's something here that we need to understand so we're gonna we're gonna pull these apart Try not to get lost in too many of the details, but I think it's important. So, first of all, Nicodemus the a Pharisee. So here we are in the 21st century, Christians. We read our Bibles, we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And most of us, what we know about Pharisees, we know from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And essentially, we stand here in the 21st century, and we look back at what we read about the Pharisees, and... Basically, what we learn is that Jesus and the Pharisees did not get along. In fact, you could say the the Pharisees didn't like Jesus one bit. And there's lots of reasons for that. Jesus Jesus and the Pharisees thought very differently about religion. Jesus and the Pharisees thought very differently about spiritual life or spirituality. Jesus and the Pharisees had very different perspectives on studying the Old Testament scriptures... Jesus and the Pharisees, they, they had a whole different definition when it came to the kingdom of God. They, they had completely different categories about how human beings relate to God. And so Jesus, Jesus and the Pharisees were always knocking heads. In fact, when you follow the story of the Pharisees in the Gospels, the, the Pharisees were the ones who were most instrumental in precipitating all the events that would lead to the crucifixion. The Pharisees wanted to get rid of Jesus. They they didn't like him, they didn't agree with him, but most importantly, they saw Jesus as a threat to their power and their influence in the Jewish society because Jesus kept exposing their, their, their hypocrisy. He kept exposing how they didn't really understand the scriptures and it was a problem. So, So typically, when we hear the word Pharisee, that's the synonym that we associate with it. They were hypocrites. But that's the luxury of living in the 21st century looking back. And I'll just tell you that the record that we have of the Pharisees recorded in the Gospels is not their finest hour. It's not their best days. But it's interesting, if you come back to the first century, you have to ask the question, why did the Pharisees have so much influence? How did did the Pharisees possess so much power? Well, to understand that, you have to go back earlier in their history. You have to go back to their origins. You interested? All right, I'm going to tell you the whole Old Testament in just a few minutes. So this will be worth whatever you don't put in the offering plate, okay? So listen. Um, The beginning of the Bible, near the beginning... God says to the nation of Israel, I will be your king and you will be my people. And they enter into a covenant. And that covenant is is essentially the book of Deuteronomy. That's the covenant that God and the nation of Israel enter into. It's a pretty typical arrangement of that time in those civilizations. And the, the covenant was essentially this. God said, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, there'll be consequences. God said, if you obey me, Israel, as your king, I will bless you. And the blessings will look like this. Um, uh, Your crops will thrive. You'll have plenty of sunshine and rain, and your seeds will become prosperous. And even when other nations aren't having good crops, you will, because I'm your king, and I'll bless you if you obey me. Uh, Your armies will be victorious. Even when you go up against stronger, bigger nations, you will win wars because I'll fight for you. I'm your king. Uh, God said, uh, your, your women will birth children who will thrive. They'll grow up to become strong adults. Um, your, your, um, your, your, your economy will thrive. You'll be very prosperous financially. And you'll just have a great reputation. Uh, nations will honor you and respect you because you will be a, a powerful force in the world because I'm your king. But Israel, if you, if you disobey me, your crops won't thrive, and your armies won't win, and your babies won't thrive, and your economy won't be prosperous. And so really, the story of the Old Testament is just the roller coaster of Israel living or not living in keeping with the covenant. In fact, we read all these prophets in the Old Testament, the ones with the strange names, And we think of prophets as always foretelling the future, but very rarely did they have things to say about the future. They did some, but not a lot. Most of the time what the prophets were doing was what's called foretelling. They were confronting Israel with the truth and saying, Israel, you better obey the covenant. If you don't obey the covenant, God's going to curse the nation And what we see as Israel's history unfolds is the troughs, the low points of their disobedience get deeper and get longer. And pretty soon Israel's worshiping idols. And they're embracing the morality of other nations that don't have God in them. And they're they're, they're full of injustice. And for the first time, the prophets start using a word. And the word is exile. Israel, if you don't obey God, if you don't go back to the covenant, God's going to send you into exile. And here's what that meant. That a stronger, mightier nation would come in and conquer you. They'd take your best and your brightest, your strongest and your smartest, and they'd carry them off to other regions to populate their kingdom. And Israel didn't obey. So the Babylonians come in and they conquered the nation of Israel and they carried them off to exile. For 70 years, Israel lived in exile. Eventually, the Babylonians were conquered. That new king, as just sort of a kind gesture to a Jewish friend, allowed the nation of Israel to go back to Jerusalem and kind of rebuild their national identity. So the Jews start... Coming back into the land of Israel, which has laid desolate for 70 years. The walls around the city of Jerusalem are all destroyed. The temple is in ruins. There's nothing there. And they start rebuilding the walls as a defense against their enemies. Eventually, they start rebuilding their homes. They start rebuilding infrastructure, like where do we get clean water? And how do we grow crops? Eventually, they start rebuilding the temple as a way of worshiping God. And here they are building back, trying to kind of get their feet on the ground. And there was a small group of men who remembered the glory days. And who remembered how they had become the great nation that they once were before they were conquered by the Babylonians. And these men, they started saying to Israel, hey, We can rebuild our walls and we can rebuild our temple and we can put our lives back together again. But if we don't get back to the covenant, if we don't start obeying God, then it's just a matter of time till we find ourselves overrun again. And so these men, these men, they started Bible studies and they started prayer meetings and they started worship services. And whenever, whenever another nation began to be a threat to the nation of Israel, these were the men who were the first to sign up to go into war to, to protect the nation. These are the men who knew the scriptures forward and backwards. They, they were the most disciplined, diligent people you'd ever meet. And they were devoted to God In fact, they were so devoted to God and they lived such devoted lives that they earned a nickname. And the people started calling them the righteous ones, the holy ones. They were separate. They were unlike any other Jew. They were so devoted to God and his word. That's the Pharisees. That's where the Pharisees began. That's their origin story. They were deeply respected, incredibly admired. They had an enormous influence in the nation of of Israel. That's why we find them holding such power in the first century. But the problem is that, and this is typical of very religious situations, is that at times you can kind of get off course. And what happened is that the, the, the Pharisees were so concerned about not breaking the laws of God that they would, they would establish like additional rules. They actually had a name for them, fences. They would build a fence around like the Sabbath. They'd say, we can't break the Sabbath or God will judge us. So let's build a fence so that we don't even get close to that. Like if you, if you get up against the fence, an alarm's gonna go off. Like, oh, you're really close to breaking the Sabbath. So they'd establish a fence, and then, well, they, that, that fence wasn't far enough removed. So what we see that the Pharisees over time, they establish all these additional traditions and rules and rituals and routines as a way of protecting the nation of Israel from breaking the laws. And unfortunately, in time, they started to believe their own stuff. And pretty soon their laws and their traditions became more important than God's laws. That's why when Jesus comes on the scene, he exposes that and and they don't like being told the truth. Did you follow that? So that's the Pharisees and Nicodemus was one of them. Nicodemus was also a member of the Jewish ruling council. That's the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was only... 71 people, 71 men who served as judges in the civic and religious structure of the nation of Israel. So of the millions of people that lived in Israel, there was this large fraternity of the Pharisees, but only 71 people qualified to be a part of the Sanhedrin. So the the group that Nicodemus runs in is getting pretty small. And then it's interesting that Jesus refers to Nicodemus as Israel's teacher, not a teacher of Israel. So the language suggests that Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you're like the best teacher in all of Israel. All of Israel's coming to you to hear your viewpoint, your philosophy, your interpretation of the scripture. You have that kind of power in the nation. You are Israel's teacher, and and you don't understand something as simple as you must be born again? In fact, Nicodemus was so confused and confounded by this phrase that he's like, what are you talking about? Do I have to get in my mother's womb a second time and start over? He's is like, how can you, the teacher of Israel, the, the best teacher that they've got, how can you not know these things? Have you not read Joel? Have you not read Zechariah? Have you not read the, the parts of the scripture that talk about God's spirit and his place in a person's heart? Well, evidently, he didn't understand them. He and his fraternity had created so many rules and regulations and I's to dot and T's to cross and jumps and hoops to jump through that they, they had completely neglected the one central truth that the spirit of God is what brings a person alive to know how to obey God. And Jesus said, you, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. I mean, if anything, Jews wanted anything. They wanted to be in the kingdom of God. And here's israel's teacher and he doesn't even know how to explain it to them do you follow all that so you know what my impression of nicodemus is he was kind of a big deal he was kind of a big deal we might call him he was the goat he was a pharisee deeply devoted, highly disciplined student of the scriptures. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, one of 71 people in the entire nation. And evidently Israel came to him looking for what he had to say. He was, he was a big deal. Did you follow that? Okay, so there's a phrase we use from time to time. I think we all understand it. You ever hear this phrase? You're too smart for your own good. I, I figure we, we use it like three different ways. Sometimes we use it humorously, almost a compliment. And then typically we use it with very precocious children. Children are very, very insightful, like more than their peers. Children who tend to be highly verbal can say things that their peers would never, never consider saying. And so, you know, a, a child says something particularly astute and you go, oh, you're too smart for your own good. That's going to get you in trouble. The other way we use it is with, like, teenagers and 20-somethings who've set their heart on doing something, but they, they refuse any advice. They don't want any input. I, I got this all figured out. Just Mom and dad, back away. I got this. And then they go and they do it, and it doesn't really work out like they thought. And the next thing you know, they're picking up the pieces and Mom and dad are going, you know, if you would just have asked for some advice, you don't have the experience, you don't have the maturity to understand all the implications of what you set out to do, if you would just ask, and they might say, you were just a little too smart for your own good. The other way that we use this phrase is to describe somebody who's so incredibly intelligent that like, they can't relate to people. They have a low social IQ. They don't really get reality. They're so up in the books that they don't know how it really works on the street. They're they're too smart for their own good. My suspicion is that Nicodemus might have been a bit too smart for his own good. Here he was teaching the nation of Israel how to get into the kingdom of God, and yet he had missed the most important part, and that is you had to be born again. He, he didn't even understand the concept. So I, I think. I think there's something to be learned there. We read about the Pharisees. And creating all these rules. And regulations. And hoops to jump through. And, and, and Jesus said to the crowds. And to his disciples. The teachers of the law. And the Pharisees. They sit in the. The place of authority, Moses' seat. They, They hold this control over the nation. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads, and they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. You get it? You get it? Okay, I got my blinker on, about ready to make a left-hand turn. Everybody with me? Stick my arm out the window. Okay, so now we're going to go to another account of an encounter. Different characters. And this, this encounter doesn't have anything to do with Nicodemus. And yet it has everything to do with Nicodemus. You ready? Coming with me? This is an encounter between Peter, or Simon as he's referred to in this passage, and some of the other disciples. The setting is Jesus is sitting on a beach, early morning, waiting for the disciples to come in from a night of fishing. Okay? When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master... Come on, we've worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything. You, you can almost hear the, the frustration in Peter's voice. If you listen closely, you can almost hear him roll his eyes. <laughs> He's like thinking, Master, seriously, you're a rabbi. Like the hardest thing you do all day is pick up scrolls. <laughs> you, you got soft hands, buddy. We're We're fishermen. I've been fishing all my life. I've been fishing since i was a kid. It's what I do for a living. I fished with my father who was a fisherman, and I fished with my grandfather who was a fisherman, and my great-grandfather who was a fisherman. It's what we do. We're experts at fishing. And the deal is that sometimes, maybe you rabbis don't get this, but sometimes you just don't catch much. Water temperature's not right, or it's too windy. and, and Who knows? But We didn't catch anything. But you can see him sort of relinquish. He's like, oh, I'm a disciple. I'm supposed to do what the master said. But because you say so, we'll let down the nets. So they backed the boats up. and, And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in other boats to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that the boats began to sink and now Peter's embarrassed. He fell at Jesus knees and he said, go away from me. I, Lord, I'm a sinful man, I should have never doubted you. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, astonished, fishermen, astonished. So were James and John, the sons of Zebedee and Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to them, guys, don't be embarrassed. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore. They left everything and they followed him. You get it? These seasoned fishermen. You listening? They were done for the night. It was early morning. They just wanted to pull the boats on shore, clean out the nets, and go get some breakfast. And this rabbi tells them, back the boats up and drop the nets. It isn't that Jesus was a better fisherman than Peter. The point is, Jesus controls the fish. Jesus created the fish. The fish exist to do his bidding. Jesus has to just simply think. And tell the fish, I need you here at this moment, right now, the biggest catch they're ever going to haul in. So when they drop the nets, they are going to be astonished. I need you to do that. Why? Because Jesus controls the fish. Jesus controls the feeding lanes. The way that the sand takes place underneath the surface and the little fish go in there to hide and the big fish come in there to eat them, Jesus controls the feeding lanes because Jesus controls the tides. And Jesus controls the waves. And Jesus controls the winds that control the waves. And Jesus controls the tilt of the earth on its axis in relationship to the sun and the moon. that the great bodies of waters do what they do because Jesus controls all of that. How, how, many, times, how many times in the gospels do we read about the, the disciples in a boat, in a storm, and they're petrified? These are seasoned sailors in a storm that they have reason to believe they might die. And where's Jesus? In the back of the boat asleep. And you hear the disciples, they're like, where's Jesus? Oh, he's in the back asleep. You know, wind and waves. And they're like, what, doesn't he care? It's not that he doesn't care. It's just that he's not concerned. What's a little storm. And so we see the disciples, they go back and they shake Jesus' away, like, Master, we're dying here. Do you not care? And Jesus gets up and he rubs the sleep out of his eyes. And if he was snarky, but he's not, you he can just sort of see him walking through the boat, looking at everybody like, Seriously, fellas? How long are we doing this? And then, and then he, just, he just speaks the words, be still, and he, Raises his hand, and the wind disappears, and the the waves become like glass. And in each of those accounts, the disciples ask this question: uh, Who is this man? Who is this man that the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this guy? And the answer is: This guy, Jesus, the Rabbi, sitting on the shore. He's God. He's the God that controls the fish and he's the God that controls the wind and he controls the waves and he controls everything because he created everything. Jesus is God. He understands more about everything than you'll ever know. He can't forget, so he can't say the phrase, I've forgotten more than you'll ever know because he can't forget. But you say, well, he he wasn't a lawyer. He, He created law. He wasn't a medical doctor. He, he could touch a person and their lives would be healed. Well, he was never married. He created marriage. He's he never raised kids. He's raised billions of them. He's the heavenly father and sons and daughters who have broken his heart and wandered far away from him. And he's brought them back and because he's never stopped loving them. Uh, who... Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? He's God. He's the smartest person in existence. And we would do well to remember that. Maybe, just maybe, just maybe, that is why Jesus said, I tell you, unless you become like little children in their innocence... In their trust, in their humility. Unless you become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You can be so smart for your own good that you can make it much more complicated than it was ever intended. You have to be like a little child who trusts the words of the big people, and the big people happens to be God, the smartest person in the universe. And he's telling you, this is how you get to heaven. This is the truth about the cross. This is the truth about the resurrection, and and like little children, we accept it. Did you follow that? I'm getting ready to make another turn. You with me? So we see all through the Bible this caution about being too smart for your own good. How many people, they, they read their authors, Oh, I had this professor, I've done the research, I, uh, that person's so successful, I'll, I'll listen to them before they'll ever listen to Jesus. We rarely place Jesus above those that we think are so intelligent, and, and the Bible warns us against the danger of this, and, and because of time, we're going to have to go quickly, but in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, the message of the cross, it's, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, They're like a virgin birth. Come on, that doesn't happen. Nobody dies on the cross and pays for the sins of the whole world. You can't can't walk on water. You can't turn water into wine. It's foolishness, all this talk about Jesus, but they don't even know the trouble they're in. It's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'll run circles around the smartest people on the planet. The intelligence of the intelligent, I'm going to frustrate. They're going to go, oh, I I hadn't asked that question. I hadn't planned on that category. I, I didn't know about that truth. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world by a baby born in a manger in a little town called Bethlehem? For the foolishness of God, (laughs) the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. But God chose the foolish things of the world to, to shame the wise carpenters, humble servant girls, apostles who came from nowhere. They were fishermen for crying out loud. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Read Romans chapter 1 sometime. Talking about society. Their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were dark. And although they claimed to be wise, they were actually fools. They ended up worshiping like birds and and raccoons rather than the one who created them. Probably one of the most disturbing verses in the Bible. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. It's happening all over our society right now. We're taking the truth, we're calling it a lie. We're taking the lie and calling it the truth. Sometimes if you have a chance, read Isaiah chapter 40. Ask the question, who, who holds the earth in their hands? Who, rises, who, who causes kingdoms to rise and fall? Who's ever given God advice? Nobody, why? Because he's the smartest person on the planet. Oh, so much I want to tell you. <laughs> Jesus talked a lot about humility. Why? Because it's a proper estimation of who I am and who he is. And so I'm humble in the presence of God. What is faith? Faith is simply recognizing that God knows better, God knows more, and i do well to trust him. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on all your own understanding, the books you've read and the professors you've had and the philosophies you've embraced. In all of your ways, submit to him. And he'll make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Don't be too smart for your own good. Fear the Lord. Shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Some of you, some of us, we can be just a little too smart for our own good and we think we have it all figured out when in fact we're not even asking the right questions. And then some of you, you're sitting here and you're going, Paul, Appreciate your zeal, buddy, but uh, chill. Wow. I'm very comfortable admitting I'm no Nicodemus. I'm not the smartest person in the room, and I'm not the most influential person at the table. I'm comfortable with that. I'm no Nicodemus, but let me ask you, are you too smart for your own good? Are you too smart for your own good? So I'm going to ask you three questions. Do not answer out loud. But answer honestly. First question is this. Do you question God's ability to provide for and protect you or the people you love? You know like when you send your kids off to school every day and you can't helicopter over top of them? Or you send them off to college and you don't hear from them for weeks? You don't know where they are, or what they're doing, or who they're running with? Or how about when your parents get to that age and they're just not making good decisions anymore? They want to keep driving. Do you question God's ability to provide for and protect you or the people you love? Second question, do you question God's timing to do what you think needs to be done? Do you question God's timing and response to the prayers that you pray about the things that are so urgent to you and it seems like he's not doing anything? Do, do you question God's capacity to love and forgive you when you fail? Do you have a script running through your head that God could never love me? God could never use me? He could never forgive me? I've done this so many times. I've, I've probably worn out the welcome. Do you question God's capacity? to love and forgive you. You see, we have a word for the answer to those three questions. Wanna you know what it is? It's worry. Worry is when you question God's ability. Worry is when you question God's timing. Worry is when you question God's capacity to do what he's promised. I shared this quote with you a few weeks ago, but we were out of time and I was in a hurry. But I think it's worth looking at again. Worry is believing that God won't get it right. Worry is believing that God won't get it right. You see, when we worry, what we're doing is we're being too smart for our own good because we think we could do it better than him. We think our timing would have been perfect. Make sense? So we gotta go, here's, here's the point. Jesus is always the smartest person in the room. Jesus is always the smartest person in the room. And we have two choices. We can resist that we can cross our arms and go no no i I don't, I don't no uh I don't believe that i'm I'm pretty smart. I got it figured out I, I can handle this you You can resist that Jesus is the smartest person in the room, or you can rest in it. You can find the peace and the comfort of knowing that I don't have to have it all figured out, and I don't have to have all the answers, and I don't have to come up with all the solutions. Jesus knows better than me and I'm trusting him. That's why the Apostle Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I don't care what's happening. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. In other words, let other people perceive just how relaxed and comfortable you are. Why? Because the Lord's right here. He's in my boat. He's the smartest person in the universe. Do not be anxious, do not worry about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all your understanding, it'll guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. In a relationship with Jesus, the smartest person in the room is always standing right beside you. Make sense? Thanks for listening. Thanks for giving me a few extra minutes. Let me ask you to stand together. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'd love to make your acquaintance. Just come on up and introduce yourself. Our Father, thank you. Thank you that your Son, Jesus, controls the fish. And the tides, the waves and the wind and our life if we'll let him. God, bring us all to that place of humility where we recognize that your son Jesus is always the smartest person in the room. And through a relationship with him, I, I can know his direction, I can know his help. I can know his comfort. I can know his peace. May we be the people who live with that confident reassurance that the Jesus we know is the smartest one in the room. I pray and ask in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thanks everybody. Have a great week. See you next Sunday.